have gotten to the bottom of that sixth pouch sliding down Virgil the toboggan or the snowboard Dante on him the demons can't get down to them because they have what been locked into the fifth evil pouch and now we got to find out what's down here on the bottom of this of the pits of the Malabolja. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. We are slow walking through comedy and have slow walked all the way down to the sixth evil pouch, the sixth of the Malabolja that make up the great eighth circle of fraud. We want to talk a bit about that and fraud today in this episode, a little bit about kind of, uh, hmm, what do I want to say, thematic or metaphoric understanding of it that happens inside of these pouches. But before we get to that, we've got to see who's down here on the bottom of this pouch who, in fact, is walking these circles. So we're at Canto 23, lines 58 through 81 of Inferno. We are way down here in Lower Hell, and let's get to it. Down at the bottom, we found tented folks who went around the circle with really slow steps, all while wailing with a look of defeat and exhausted. They had on cloaks with cowls so low they fell over their eyes, made in the fashion of the ones tailored for the monks at Cluny. The cloaks outside dazzled with gilt work, but the inside was all lead, and so very heavy that they made the ones Frederick used on people seem like woven straw a very tiring tunic to last all of eternity. We turned in the usual direction to go along with these guys. We were intent on their sad laments, but because of the weight, these worn out guys came along so slowly that we got new companions every time we put one foot in front of the other. Then I to my master, maybe you could find someone who's known for his deeds or his name. Glance around as we walk along. And one of them behind us caught my Tuscan speech and called out, Slow down, you guys who speed along through the dismal air. Maybe you can get what you want from me. At which my leader turned and said, Hang back a bit, then continue on at his pace. And that's where we're going to drop it. With Virgil telling the pilgrim, to hang back and stick with this guy going along slowly. Before we get to the passage, I'm going to have to tell you the plot. I'm going to have to tell you what's ahead. These are the hypocrites. And the reason I have to tell you that is because it makes some sense out of this passage to know in advance who these people are. The hypocrites walking around in their golden and yet leaden cowls and capes. We want to talk about why that is, why that works inside the passage. This, again, brings up the notion that Dante is best reread. You have to read on, actually, into the next passage and the next episode of this podcast to find out that these are the hypocrites. But it's just important to know it now, given what's happening. I tried to work this out so that I didn't mention that these were hypocrites throughout this episode. And it just doesn't work. You just have to know it in order to see it. So let's start through the passage. We've got three things to cover inside the passage and then a larger question about the thematics and a fraud. The passage starts down at the bottom. We found tented 
folks. And I've used the word tinted, T-I-N-T-E-D, like they have been covered with tint or paint. I've translated that for the Florentine word dipinta, which can mean painted. I could say down at the bottom, we've had painted people, painted folks. I believe Hollander uses the word lacquered, which seems a little hard for me to take. It has this idea of painting on it, these people. And it's a kind of strange vocabulary vocabulary to use. But how are they painted exactly since they're walking around in these monks' cloaks that are on the outside gilted and on, on the inside lead? So how are they painted? Most commentators point to a passage in the Gospel of Matthew during the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 6, 16, if you want to look it up. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is giving all his pronouncements about don't be like so-and-so and don't be like so-and-so and don't be like the hypocrites and la la la. And when he gets to the hypocrites, he says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with their sad faces, for they disfigure their faces so that people may believe that they're fasting. In other words, they put on the look of fasting in order to be a hypocrite and go home and have a nice slice of roast beef, <laughs> whatever they have, at the end of their, <laughs> their alleged public fasting. Most critics point to passages like that to explain why these people are tinted, dipinta. There's also a moment where Jesus refers to, well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I think particularly the Pharisees, as whited sepulchers, you know, whitewashed tombs that may also come in with this painted word, but there may be more to it than even that. And we just want to hold that word dipinta in our heads as we go through this passage, because there may be more in this Malabolja about painting, about a surface coat than first meets the eye. So let's just keep that word in our mind and say down at the bottom, we found tinted people or tinted folks who went around the circle with really slow steps. It's just important to see the change from the fifth pouch. All that chaos with all those demons up above the pitch and falling in it and racing here and there and grabbing people with their hooks, all that loud, boisterous, raucous stuff that happened in the fifth pouch is out here. These are people walking extremely slowly. You get the overall feel of silence. And I should say that if we were reading the Florentine, you would see that some of the rhymes and some of the sounds used in this canto are extremely heavy. Lots of big consonant clusters, lots of P's, lots of alliteration, heavy weighted speech used inside this canto in the Florentine. And it matches, in fact, the speed that these people are moving. It's impossible to read Canto 23 quickly in the Florentine because of the consonant clusters that keep happening throughout it. It's important to know that Dante's working even at that level of poetics, even though we're doing this in English. So they're all the while wailing with a look of defeat and exhausted. They're just worn out. They had on cloaks with cowls so low, the passage goes on, they fell over their eyes, made in the fashion of the ones tailored for the monks at Cluny. This is a little bit of a translation problem. You should know that most of the early commentators think that what Dante the poet is talking about is not Cluny in France, given the word that's used, but Cologne, Germany, Cologne, Germany, and the abbey there. It's now generally accepted that he is indeed talking about Cluny. I'm going to leave it at Cluny. It's the accepted reading now and not Cologne or Cologne, Germany. 
Cluny was a Benedictine abbey in Burgundy. It's not much of it left. If you ever go there, it is a beautiful spot, uh, but there's not much of the abbey left. There's foundations left. You can kind of see how giant the cathedral, the abbey church was. Um, but again, there's just pieces of it left. It was founded in 910 of the Common Era. It was a Benedictine abbey, so it was a reformist abbey already trying to reform um, abusive monastic practices. Bernard of Clairvaux, by the time Bernard comes along, absolutely despises Cluny. Why? Because Cluny became the most wealthy abbey in all of Europe, known for its fabulous monastic cloaks, known for its beautiful fabrics that the monks wore, known for its wealth, the gold, the gilt, the silver services, the way that the chalice looked, the enameling, the jewels on every surface of plate and chalice throughout the the services inside the church. I mean, honestly, it was known for its wealth. And that here, these monks traveling so slowly around, or these friars, as we'll discover them to be, traveling so slowly around this circle are being given this kind of slap at Cluny. In other words, they're the rich ones. And this is always Dante's problem, and we should know it always going in. Dante is most uncomfortable at the notion that the church has money. That makes Dante extremely uncomfortable, and he thinks it leads to the turmoil in his world. That is, the church is supposed to be called to a life of poverty. That it is so enriched allows it to play on a level playing field with the political leaders of its day, and Dante believes that this leads to the chaos of his age. Whether it does or not, doesn't really concern us. The point is that Dante thinks so, and so that Cluny is called out here inside this circle. We shouldn't be surprised. These are the hypocrites, and we should expect them to be churchy people, given that hypocrites are most often churchy people. The problem is, as we'll see in the next episode of the podcast, these aren't. But anyway, going back on in this passage, the cloaks outside dazzled with gilt work. So, you know, they're kind of gold on the outside of these things, but the inside was all lead and so very heavy. So it's like a hypocrite. It's double-sided. It's got an outside that's gold. It's got an inside that's lead. They're heavy. This is why they're walking slowly. They're barely able to move in these lead cloaks that have gold all on the outside, like a hypocrite, double surfaced. And then there's this historical reference. They made the ones Frederick used on people seem like woven straw. All the early commentators say this is a reference to Frederick II. Remember the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, who we've already passed. Farinata says that Frederick II is down in that tomb with him back in Canto 10, line 119. So this is the great Frederick II, whose court in Sicily allowed so much Arabic learning to enter up into Europe and change the face of European thinking. Frederick was at least said to use the kappa plumbea. What this means is that he would have an accused person put in lead cloak. So he'd make a cloak of lead, supposedly fairly thick, according to the early commentators, then put them in a cauldron and light a fire under it. 
And as you can imagine, it would get extremely hot. The lead would melt into the person's skin inside the cloak. And eventually, as one commentator points out, the person and the cloak would both come to a boil in the cauldron. I should tell you that there is absolutely no historical evidence that Frederick II ever did this, but it was kind of common folkloric language, a kind of what folkloric truth that Frederick practice this kind of punishment. And so Dante is picking it up here. There is a question about whether Dante knows it's not true. I don't know. It's That seems above my pay grade. And it also seems very speculative to start saying, is Dante here playing with this, knowing it's not true? And so here's the big torque on this. Therefore, Dante is hypocritically using a historical reference that isn't really historical. You know I love meta-readings of comedy. It seems too far to me. Uh, it seems like that just pushes this way out too far. Instead, it seems like it's common popular knowledge in Dante's day that Frederick II uses this kind of punishment. And so he's he's saying here, these cloaks are so bad, they're so heavy, they make the ones that Frederick uses, the capa plumbea, it makes it look just like woven straw. That It makes it look like it's nothing. And so it ends a very tiring tunic to last all eternity. Let me say one thing before we pass on to the next bit of this passage about the change in tone from the fifth pocket to the sixth. It's going to be hard to hear this, and you're going to have to kind of accept it as a modern, but comedy is not unified in the way that you think works of literature are unified. Comedy is not unified the way Middlemarch or Jane Eyre, <laughs> Jane Eyre falls apart at its end, but okay, Jane Eyre or Middlemarch or Absalom Absalom or Ulysses are unified. Those works, let's say The Great Gatsby, let's take more, let's just take modern works, something by George Saunders, Lincoln and the Bardo. Those works are heavily unified. They're heavily coherent because post-Romantic Revolution, coherence became a function of narrative. It is not a function in Dante's day. And so that we see changes in Dante and changes in Virgil's characterization and changes of the pitch and tone of these various pits doesn't surprise us if we know anything about medieval lit. Medieval lit is often made by assembly. That is, you take this piece, you take that piece, you start to pull them together. These are called topoi or topos from the Greek meaning place. The plural is topoi. You take these topoi and you start sewing them together to create a larger work. And we can probably see that going on here. In the previous pouch, we were in the topos of a fablio, a French dirty joke, along with perhaps medieval street theater. Here, we've moved into a different kind of topos. Here, we've moved into a more prophetic stance about churchly and ultimately, as we'll see, political ills. That the figures shift a bit and that Dante shifts a bit and that Virgil shifts a bit, it's important to know that while we may poke at inconsistencies inside of their characters, we may be also riding over the top of Topoi. Dante in a fablio, the pilgrim in a fablio, may not act the same way Dante in this rather prophetic voiced canto acts. And we should note, this is a prophetic voiced canto. It's happening at the bottom of the pouch 
in the same way the third pouch occurred way back in Canto 19. Let's talk about that as we move on in the passage. Passage says we turned in the usual direction, and what he means by that is we turned to the left. We turned in the usual way we did to go along with these guys. We were intent on their sad laments, but because of the weight, these worn-out guys came along so slowly that we got new companions every time we put one foot in front of the other. That's my translation. It's literally every time we moved a hip in the Florentine, but every time we put one foot in front of the other, we, you know, we kept catching up with a new set because they're moving under these lead cloaks so slowly. I mentioned the third evil pouch back from Canto 19, where the Simoniacs are, where Dante confronts the Pope and talks about Popes to come and all that stuff. That's the last time that our Pilgrim and Virgil have been in the bottom of one of these pits. Here they are again in the bottom of a pit. These are connected to each other. And when Dante says, here, a very tiring tunic to last all of eternity. The word he uses there is manto, a very tiring mantle to last all of eternity. And that's the same word used for the papal mantle back in Canto 19, line 69. So the third and the sixth pouches are connected. It is all about the church. It's all about churchly corruption and more, as we'll see. The church is getting involved in politics in both cantos, and Dante and Virgil are on the bottom floor of both of these pouches, both with the Simoniacs and now with the hypocrites. Let's talk about hypocrites for a minute. And what's going on here? Why are they walking so slowly in these cowls and these capes in these cloaks? Why are they going so slowly? Well, of course, they weigh a lot, but surely it means more than that. And we talked about the double nature, the gold outside the lead interior, the double nature of hypocrisy. But Maybe there's more to it even than that. Maybe there's a comment being made here that hypocrisy slows one down in the journey to God. Now, these guys are not headed toward God. They're here in hell, and they're stuck here for forever in this place. But maybe there's an overarching comment going on that hypocrisy slows down the journey. I like that idea because, of course, hypocrisy appears to speed things up. If I'm a hypocrite to you, I'm generally trying to speed up our interactions and get out of you what I want. You know, let's say, um, I don't know, I uh, castigate you for some uh, sexual affair you've carried on. I say, oh, you know, how, how dare you be so dirty and nasty. And all the while, of course, I'm doing the same thing behind the scenes. I'm basically trying to hurry us on in the plot to get us over this moment so that we don't sit here and you don't realize what I'm doing on the slide behind your back. Perhaps, too, this is a part of the commentary on the sin of these guys walking around. How do I see this? Hypocrisy makes everybody travel at my speed. If I'm a hypocrite, let's say, I'm a, uh, let's, uh, let's say I'm a big church leader, and let's say I'm one of these guys that gets caught in adultery, you know, one of these big TV preachers, they get caught in adultery. In the end, what's happening with hypocrisy and being a hypocrite is you're asking people to move at my speed and with me, not at the speed of the universe 
or at the speed that God wills. In other words, hypocrisy asks people to move at the hypocrite's speed. And finally, hypocrisy up in our world is quick and light-footed. Generally, hypocrites are very <laughs> fleet about their hypocrisy. Let's go back to our, our TV preacher example. They're very quick and light on their feet as hypocrites. Here in hell, in the inversion of it. They're very slow moving. They're very methodical in ways that hypocrites are often not. They may be very planned out in their lies, but after all, they kind of have to move quickly in order to keep their hypocrisy fresh or to keep me from noticing that they're hypocrites. All of that speaks to perhaps the inversions, the reversals, the commentary on hypocrisy that's going on inside the passage itself, which now we need to finish. Then I said to my master, maybe you could find someone who's known for his deeds or his names. Glance around as we walk along. I never know whether to take this as a slap or not. <laughs> hey, Virgil, you're good at pointing out hypocrites. Find one. It. I don't think it is, but it's just kind of strange. I mean, it is Dante the Pilgrim's motive to say, find somebody I can talk to, even back up with Francesca. But Dante picks out Francesca and Paolo on the wind. Dante often picks out figures or they approach him, like Filippo Argenti in Styx or Ferranata on the tombs of the heretics. Here, he turns to Virgil and says, find somebody that I that you could know, that we could know by name or deeds. And it just always seems to me like, what what makes you think I can pick out a hypocrite so fast? But so it is. I don't know that there's a, a kind of sly underpoke here, but there might be. But Virgil doesn't have time to respond because a hypocrite himself responds. One of them behind us, the passage says, caught my Tuscan speech. And we've established this now, that Dante speaks Tuscan and Virgil speaks in the Lombard dialect. And again, it's coming up in the passage. One of them caught my Tuscan speech and called out, slow down, you guys, who speed along through the dismal air. Maybe you can get what you want from me. Let me say a, one thing about the grammar of the passage before I come back to this Tuscan speech. When the guy says, slow down, you guys, who speed along through the dismal air, all that slow down, you guys, is in the you plural. But the next sentence, maybe you can get what you want out of me or from me, that's in the singular. So when he says slow down, he's addressing both Virgil and Dante. And then when he says maybe you can get what you want from me, he's talking directly to the pilgrim. Maybe because he's heard the pilgrim say, hey, find somebody that I can talk to. Maybe that's why. Or is he narrowing in as a hypocrite on who he thinks is a good mark or who he thinks is a good person to, uh, I don't know what, practice his hypocrisy on? Maybe he sees Virgil as too learned or too austere, or maybe he recognizes Virgil in some way. This will play out toward the end of the passage. And maybe he doesn't want to address anything to Virgil. Virgil's just too smart for him, or at, so it seems at first. But it's an interesting problem in the grammar that the you is first plural and then it's singular. And Virgil says, hang back a bit and continue on his pace. Let's go back to that Tuscan speech bit. Catches my Tuscan speech. I always hear that. 
as the fear of exile entering the poem. Dante's on the run. Dante has been exiled from Florence. His life is always in danger. And given where he ends up, up in Verona, over in Ravenna, given the places he ends up, his speech must stick out like a sore thumb. Here in Inferno, as we go down, there comes more and more of this idea that people hear the Tuscan being spoken. Of course, Ferenata heard it and responded to it and said, O Tuscan, and now here again, somebody is hearing it and pointing it out. It always feels to me as if we've got this thing by the tale of exile. Dante is expressing his fear. He could open his mouth and be found out at any moment. And I think that the poem's greatness is that the poet's existential crisis, to use very modern words, the poet's existential crisis is allowed to enter the text at any given moment. Let's talk about the larger thematics in fraud as one last bit. It's the question of circularity. You'll notice in these pits of fraud, people are often just walking, walking along, whether they're being whipped forward by demons, not the simoniacs, they're upside down in their holes, but often people are moving around the circle, around and around the circle. Maybe not the baritors, but the demons certainly are patrolling the outside of the pouch of baritry. There's a lot of movement inside of the circles of fraud and movement ahead. And we want to talk about that for a minute because really, until we get to fraud, it's not necessarily the case that people are moving around the circles unless they're blown about on the wind. But I don't know that they're necessarily blown circularly. They're certainly blown about on the wind and maybe they're blown around the circle of lust. But still, nonetheless, it doesn't have an overall circular feel to it. The gluttons, of course, are just lying there. It's the avaricious and the prodigal where we first see them rolling their rocks. We first see the kind of circularity of the whole thing. And they're moving back and forth as they roll their rocks to smash into each other. I mean, the violent toward others? No, they're standing in that river. The homosexuals? No. The blasphemous? No, they're strapped to the ground. The homosexuals? are running around the burning sands. The users are just sitting there. The heretics, no, they're in their tombs. See, it's this question of movement around the circle. Why is fraud, and this is the big thematic question, why is fraud often in motion? I have several answers to this. One, the movement in the subsets of fraud is often pointless. It's just around the circle. It's just without direction. And fraud is always directional. You practice fraud to get something out of me, whether it be the buying of political office, the buying of church office, whether it be seducing me, flattering me, pimping me out, whether here it be hypocrisy, you're trying to get something out of me. You are goal-driven as a hypocrite. There's no other reason to be a fraudster. You want me to think something about you. You want me to do something for you. You want me to do something in response to you. And here, fraud is pointless in hell. It's directionless. It's just moving in a circular fashion like a snake eating its tail, never getting anywhere. It's also exhausting. I mean, to be always moving 
like Jason, like the seducers, like the pimps, like even the barriters, like these guys. It's just exhausting. And there is a comment, I think, being made that fraud exhausts the world. And in the way that the world has been exhausted by religious and political fraud, these guys are getting exhausted down below. They're spending an eternity in purposeless motion round and round and round. But we're not. We're heading on into the next passage. There we'll learn more about who these guys are who have heard our Pilgrim and Virgil. We're going to find out more about what they've done, and we're going to find out that they are deeply connected to Dante. And in fact, they're not here for churchly fraud. They're here for political fraud. But that's all ahead. Subscribe to this podcast. Like it, rate it. Please do those things. I really appreciate your comments. You can contact me on my website, markscarborough.com. I'd be glad to talk more with you there about Dante or on Twitter. Great conversations on Twitter. Hashtag at Walking with Dante. I'll find you and we can continue to talk about this most magnificent work, comedy. See you next time for more hypocrisy. I'm Mark Scarborough, and as you know, this is Walking with Dante.